Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 17th of August here on Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hanna and I'm taking you through to 9.30 this morning. <clears throat> You'll notice that my uh, co-host Pierre is not in today. It is his birthday today, so uh, next week make sure you flood uh, the phone lines with uh, wishes of uh, good fortune and uh, ageing, basically. The, the old man's getting old. But Pierre's not here uh, this week and I will be taking you through uh, to 930 a big thank you to um, Annie and Marcus for another wonderful show, Solidarity Breakfast. And the track that they went out with was a song called Waving Goodbye by Lou Bennett. Lou Bennett, of course, being one of three that made up the group Titus, which I think this year entered the Hall of Fame, um, the musical Australian Musical Hall of Fame. So congratulations to them. Excuse me. Asia Pacific Currents is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. If you want to get in touch with us, find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. We are on Facebook and Twitter, so find us on those social media platforms as well. In the second part of the show today, I will be bringing you that interview I conducted with Somyot Pruksaka Semsuk when I had the fortune of being with him in Malaysia on a um, trade union solidarity program. And last week, you'll recall that uh, Pierre and I had a bit of a chat about some of the work that AAWL did while in Malaysia. So we will have a chance to um, hear that interview with Somyot. And for those of you who don't remember, Somyot Pruksakasemsuk was a... Um, a political prisoner in Thailand arrested under the Les Majeste law for printing an article that, through a very complicated way, looked like it was insulting the monarchy and in Thailand, actually. That's all you need these days. So that will be the second part of the show. But of course, first up, news from around the region. And we are going to start in Kazakhstan. Through a special pardoning decree of the President of the Republic of Kazakhstan, Erlan Baltabai, who uh, was the leader of the Independent Oil and Gas Workers Union, and he was also the Vice President of the Confederation of Independent Trade Unions of Kazakhstan. He, Erlan Baltabai, was released from custody on the 10th of August. He was convicted on bogus charges for misappropriation of funds in retaliation for his trade union work and support for leaders of the dissolved Confederation of Independent Trade Unions of Kazakhstan. Um, Erlan Baltabai was sentenced to seven years in jail and was served a ban on any public activity such as trade union activities. The international trade union movement condemned the sentencing and launched a massive campaign for his freedom. Uh, 
And during the International Labor Conference in Geneva in June 2019, as well as during the session in 2017 of that same conference, Kazakhstan was put under special scrutiny for system violations of trade union and human rights. This and the international campaign allowed the union leader to be finally freed. Um, And just so you know, by way of background, there are other union leaders in Kazakhstan who also were convicted on bogus charges, and those leaders include Larissa Karkova and Amin Elyusinov, as well as Nurbek Kushakbav. So those four, which includes Erlan Baltabai, were convicted of those charges. The cases against them, um, against all of these trade union leaders, is aimed at oppressing and silencing trade union activists. So two of the four that I just mentioned, Elyusinov and Kushabek, uh, excuse me, uh, Kushakbev, were released in May 2018, and one of those, Larissa Karkova, remains in prison. Moving now to Iran, uh, again with the uh, suppression and repression against trade unions and trade union organising. So in Iran, and this relates to the Haftape workers' um, ongoing protests, the sugar cane workers, Sepide Gulian, um, so Sepide, for those of you who don't know, is a journalist. Um, she's a daughter of one of the workers of Haftape and she was reporting on um what was happening uh, at those protests. Uh, so she, she has is in prison. Now her lawyer has been threatened with arrest for representing her in court. Um, the Haftape workers have put out a statement. This statement was put out on Tuesday the 10th of August. Sepide Gulian was tried for defending the rights and demands of the Haftape workers. Sepide Gulian has stated that during my interrogation I was under duress and tortured and forced to make a confession, so I do not accept the charges. Um, uh, Jamali Dean Haidari Manesh, apologise for destroying that name, that person is Sepide's defence lawyer. While defending Sepidair, um, her testimony stated that all the charges um, based... So the lawyer is saying that all of Sepidair's charges based on his client's statements were false and the confession had been obtained under torture. Her lawyer went on to say that my client Sepidair Gulian, as the child of a worker, considered it her legitimate right to defend other workers and their rights and this is not a crime. When the lawyer defended Sepidair in this way, he was threatened with arrest and all of his personal items were seized. The judge said to Sepidair Gulian's lawyer that by defending Sepidair Gulian, you're undermining the judiciary and the security forces. The judge threatened Sepidair with a transfer to Evan Prison, to which Sepidair replied, it doesn't make any difference to me which jail I'm in, but that my situation should be settled and the detention should end. After this so-called trial ended, Sepide Gulian's defence lawyer's personal items that had been previously seized were then handed back to him and Sepide was taken back to prison. Um, the the Haftape workers also condemned the threats to arrest workers' defence lawyers Farzane Zalabi and Haider Manesh, who have defended their clients according to their legal duty. The intimidation and threats against the defendants' lawyers show what calamities are happening to political prisoners in Iran. And that statement 
um, was signed by the Haftape Sugarcane Workers Union. So now not only the workers but also their supporters and the lawyers um, are being threatened and repressed. Moving now to China, hundreds of school children have been drafted in to make Amazon's Alexa devices in China as part of a controversial and often illegal attempt to meet production targets. And this is Amazon, as I just said. Interviews with workers and leaked documents from Amazon supplier Foxconn show that many of the children have been required to work nights and overtime to produce the smart speaker devices in breach of Chinese labour laws. According to documents, the teenagers drafted in from schools and technical colleges in and around the central southern city of Hengyang are classified as interns and their teachers are paid by the factory to accompany them. Teachers are asked to encourage uncooperative pupils to accept overtime work on top of regular shifts. Some of the pupils making Amazon's Alexa-enabled Echo and Echo Dot devices, along with Kindles, have been required to work for more than two months to supplement staffing levels at the factory during peak production periods. More than a 1,000 pupils are employed aged from 16 to 18. Chinese factories are allowed to employ students aged 16 and older, but these school children are not allowed to work nights or overtime. Foxconn, which also makes iPhones for Apple, admitted that students had been employed illegally and said it was taking immediate action to fix the situation. The company said in a statement, we've doubled the oversight and monitoring of the internship program and each relevant partner school to ensure that under no circumstances will interns be allowed to work overtime or nights. Of course, Foxconn has some of the most horrendous uh, labour conditions um, in and of itself and we know that Amazon is basically working its staff to the bone preventing um, toilet breaks and other breaks. So uh, don't take that statement uh, at all seriously. Moving now to India, a massive wave of protests across India on the 2nd of August against the Modi government's corporate-friendly labour law reforms highlights the crisis of social dialogue in India. Workers across India, including those from industrials affiliates, hit the streets in response to central trade unions' calls for nationwide protests on the 2nd of August as the Modi government introduced the Code on Wages Bill and the Code on Occupational Safety, Health and Working Conditions Bill in Lok Sabha in the current parliament session. The Code on Wages, which has now been passed by the Parliament, amalgamates four separate labour laws that govern fixing and paying wages. Unions say the new code reneges on progress made in the recent past through social dialogue and undermines the participation of union representatives in the process of fixing minimum wages. While unions demanded that minimum wages should be revised annually, the new code allows the revision at least once in five years. The Code on Wages also grossly dilutes the inspection regime by replacing the Labor Inspector with an Inspector Come Facilitator and introduces a web-based randomised computerised inspection scheme, jurisdiction-free inspections and reviewing information electronically for inspection. The Code on Occupational Safety, Health and Working Conditions subsumes 13 existing labour laws and is yet to be passed by the Parliament. These and other two Labor Codes 
on industrial relations and social security are part of the Modi government's attempt to amalgamate 44 existing labour laws into four simple labour codes. Existing labour laws were originally enacted as a result of workers' struggle and, and enacted to address specific needs and protections of workers' rights in a variety of manufacturing, services and construction sectors. Trade unions have opposed the oversimplification of the laws and contend that both the bills absolutely ignore objections raised by unions. And moving now to uh, Japan. The utility company that operates the tsunami-crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant will run out of space to store its contaminated water in three years. Fukushima Daiichi suffered extensive meltdowns in three of its reactors due to a massive 2011 earthquake and and the tsunami that devastated northeastern Japan. In a bid to contain the radioactive fallout, TEPCO, which is a Tokyo Electric Power Company holdings, they installed some 1,000 tanks to hold the treated but still radioactive water used to keep the reactors cool. The tanks hold over 1 million tonnes of the dirty water. While experts recommend that it is released into the sea in a controlled manner, locals have vehemently opposed the plan. However, there's growing pressure to resolve the issue. TEPCO reports it will run out of storage room for this water in three years. Immediately after the tsunami, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant's reactors were leaking water with radioactive isotopes into the ocean. In an effort to contain these atoms, 960 tanks were built at the site to siphon the runoff. These tanks can hold roughly 1.15 million tonnes of water. TEPCO expects to secure enough extra tanks to hold 1.37 million tonnes in total by the end of 2020, but it's still not enough. There are plans to reduce the amount of water that is produced through this reaction, but even at the reduced levels, the tanks would reach full capacity in either the summer or autumn of 2022. So TEPCO installed equipment to decontaminate the water, but it still remains radioactive. It contains a hydrogen isotope that also occurs in minute amounts in nature but at these levels is still dangerous and contaminated. A panel commissioned by the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry considered diluting and releasing the water into the ocean but as I said before there are massive protests and opposition to this. So I guess this uh, for me raises the question of a planned economy, planned energy system and uh, alternative environmentally safe energy system controlled by workers. Obviously, uh, Fukushima, TEPCO uh, is not that. And our last story uh, for today is from Australia. uh, And this is, uh, again, those silica levels um, that we've raised uh, in previous shows. A Victorian father who has a life expectancy of only five to ten years if he doesn't get a lung transplant soon says a new national mandatory limit for silica dust exposure doesn't go far enough and that the decision will cost lives. Michael Nolan, 33, is a former stonemason who was diagnosed in March this year with silicosis and is on a waiting list for a transplant. He wanted the present dust exposure limit of 0.1 milligrams per cubic metre over an eight-hour shift dramatically cut to save lives. The Cancer Council of Australia, unions and the Victorian state government wanted the limit to be set at 0.02 milligrams per cubic metre, which would make the nation a world leader. 
But Safe Work Australia, the national body that develops work health and safety policies, decided on Wednesday to cut the limit to 0.05. A committee of state and territory work safe authority heads, a federal government representative, some union officials and business lobbyists made the decision. Victoria Trades or Council Occupational Health and Safety uh, leader Paul Sutton noted Japan's silica dust exposure levels is 0.03 and the US has recently cut its limit to 0.025. Basically, WorkSafe or sorry, Safe Work Australia's decision ignores international scientific evidence. It ignores the Cancer Council's recommendations. They've also introduced a three-year implementation period which is especially galling because workers are basically exposed to these higher levels in the three years it'll take to phase in this decision. The Australian Chamber of Commerce, no surprises there, commerce and industry, supported keeping the dust exposure limit at present levels because it doesn't think a reduction would improve safety outcomes. Instead, it favours extra awareness raising and compliance activities. Basically, this all relates to how much it would cost um, to bring in the changes. It's understood large quarries could face $1 to $2 million in new equipment costs and the construction sector could be up for $400 million if the dust exposure limit is reduced. So necessary to continue those fights, um, not just uh, on the decision makers, but... um, in political activism. Gonna, it's 19 minutes past nine o'clock. Must go to a community announcement and then our interview with Somyot. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Twenty minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio Three CR. Our feature interview this morning is with Somyot Pruksaka Samsuk. He's a former DT. D- detainee uh, or prisoner under the Les Majeste law in Thailand and I had the opportunity to interview him while we were together in Malaysia. This interview is on a train uh, and you can hear some train announcements in the background. Welcome Somyot, thank you for doing this interview with me. Let's start with um, why it was that you went to prison in the first place. I don't want to go to the prison and nobody want to go to the prison but because of uh, in Thai society we lack of the freedom of speech we lack of the freedom to express our opinion and we have the law prohibited people to express freely their opinion especially uh, our monarchy that have the law prohibited you to express your opinion. So I was the editor of the magazine and there, there were two articles that publicized considered to be insult to the king. So I tried to fight the case in the court that this is our freedom we should have the right to express our opinion. Anyway, the court sentenced me 11 years and then reduced my sentence when I was stay in the prison already six years. So that's 
conclusion the sentence in seven years. We uh, we were a part of a network of people who supported you while you were inside prison. Um, can you tell me if any of the solidarity that we did on the outside reached you? Did did you see or get any of the solidarity from the outside? Uh, you have to understand our limitation in Thai society. People are fled and living under dictatorships. Many of us were detained, were kidnapped, and attacked. So it's difficult to take exercise our right. So when I was in the prison, many friends, many international solidarity, giving support to my case. So I have to thank you to the trade union movement, uh, especially from AAWL that's monitor my case and give moral support to me and encourage me to keep my life going on even though I have to live under difficulty circumstance in the prison but because of this encouraging make me uh, encourage me to fight to gain the freedom for Thai people can you tell us a little bit about what prison was like on the inside? The prison, first of all, because of we the human being and freedom is the most important. It's like we need the food, we need the shelter, we need the medicine, we also need the freedom. Without the freedom, it means we lack of dignity as human being. So freedom is the one of the very important for human being for our life. Without this we are not the human being. So uh, this is very important that uh, every human being really need it. But when we stay in the prison that means we don't have freedom. That means we don't have dignity of life. That means we are under control and we are living under limitation. So this is much suffering. You cannot eat what you like to eat. You cannot think what you like to think. You cannot go anywhere. Even though you want to read or communicate with the people, you cannot. So living in the prison is lack of freedom at all. And I can say we living under this miserable life or we are in the hell. You told me before that um, as terrible as the situation was in prison, the you were known as an important case because you were so because there was the solidarity movement for you on the outside did that make any difference for you in prison 
Uh, at the beginning, when I was in the prison, they fought me to work very really hard in the workshop and moved me from one department to another department or moved me from one prison to another prison. Within one year, I had to move eight prisons in Thailand and each prison far away each other. This means I have to adapt myself every changing of the prison. I have to change the bedroom. I have to change uh, flame or I become newcomer on the time in the prison. So it's really bad and suffering a lot. When I was in one province in the north of Thailand, I fought to work uh, very hard working. Suddenly, because of there was the statement from many friends overseas giving solidarity, giving concern of my plight being moving from one place to another place. So the collection department, the, the governor of that prison, reading this information, and then he approached to me and say apologize that he fought me to work hard. And then he said, now I can be in a better environment. So now you're on the outside, but the issue for democracy for the Thai people still important. So um, tell me about the situation for democracy in Thailand. In fact, stay in the prison is the small place. Confine myself in a limited area or in the small room, small cell. But when I came out, I find out this is we change. I myself come from the small prison and come to stay in the big prison. Why? Because of even though I have more freedom, more space, but our country, our society still lack of freedom, lack of democracy. People still living with the fear and don't want to stand up. When I came out from the prison, I find out our Thai people still living under fear, atmosphere, and they cannot have freedom of speech. They don't have freedom to take political action they want. They cannot even though to dream what society they want to build up, they want to live in. So we live in the no future society. So we want to change this society. We don't want to keep this society for the next generation to live with our hope. And we want to build up the new society we are going to have for the new generation. 
And how do you think is the best way to build up that new society? We have to organize. If we work in the factory, we have to organize into the union. If we work in the public service, we have to organize into the union. If we are self-employed, we also have to organize into the union or in any particular organization that can create our power because individualistic or one person, we lack of bargaining power by ourselves. We need to come together so that we can have our own uh, power and this collective power can create the new society. We can bargain with the rich people. We can bargain with the employer so that we can enjoy more right, more freedom and better life in our workplace, in the community and in the society. That was Somyot Pruksaka Semsuk, former um, political prisoner in Thailand under the Les Majeste law. This is Asia Pacific Currents. We are well and truly out of time, over time, in fact. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next Saturday from 9 o'clock with more news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region. But coming up next is Palestine Remembered. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.